Greetings and welcome to this week's performance of My Favourite Flop. At this time, we ask that you turn up the volume on all cell phones, laptops and car stereos as loud as possible. And now, sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Hey, old friends. So, welcome to our final episode of season one of My Favorite Flop. How crazy is that? That's in, I mean, it's insane. Like, to think that a year ago we recorded a still unheard of. Um, <laughs> well, at this point, we had recorded the bonus episode, right? I think so. I think we had. I mean, the other one we don't talk about, although it kind of ties into what we're talking about right now. But it's insane. I I could not even imagine that we would have gotten to this point. It's very exciting for us. And we really thank you all so much from the bottom of our hearts for being dedicated listeners to these goofballs. But before we move into tonight's final episode, we need to take a second to recognize something that happened in our industry in the last couple of weeks at the loss of Mr. Stephen Sondheim. Yes, it would not be correct, especially for a podcast like ours, to not address this, especially with the kind of listeners we have. Uh, I think a couple of you may have heard of the guy before, and we've definitely talked about him a little bit on this show. I have a feeling we're going to talk about him a bit more on this show uh, as it continues. The loss of Stephen Sondheim was kind of like a meteor in our industry. I We've lost people. We've lost epic people in this industry. I mean, Elaine Stritch, uh, we've lost legends. Yeah. Carol Channing, I don't think anything felt as much of a gut punch as the day after Thanksgiving, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, to just, it reminded me so much of a Sondheim song that I get, I think it's brought up in these situations where you just don't know how to describe what you're feeling, but you're always going to remember where you were. And it's something just broke from Assassins. I don't know. Did that come through your head at all, Christina? Like It didn't, uh, but Assassins isn't one of his shows that I know super well. Sure. Um, I, I was just so moved by the posts I've seen across the industry of all of his letters to people. I mean, some of them real, some of them not real. Although no, I, wish- I mean, some of them are spoofs, I'm sure. But it is a it was a rite of passage for uh, musical theater writers to tell Mr. Sondheim about their experiences and what they were doing, or if they were an actor in in one of his shows, even if it was regional, even if it was high school. And he would always write people back, and he was accessible. And I think that on top of his legendary status, I think. That also, I mean, I never wrote Sondheim. Did you write Sondheim? <laughs> I didn't, but actually the day after he passed away, I was invited to a Sondheim sing-along. Um, okay. And it was very, it was very sweet. It was a bunch of industry people in LA. We just all met at a friend's house and their the music director. And so we just all got up and, and there were performers there. There were writers there, fans of musical theater who were there. And there was a gentleman who got up who I, I wasn't familiar with, but apparently has a show opening off Broadway in the new year. And he had written Sondheim a couple weeks ago. 
and said, hey, you know, I'm finally opening my first off-Broadway show. I'm very excited, blah, 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 did the thing. And he got his letter back from Stephen the day after Stephen passed away. No, And no. so he read it live for the first time in front of us at this vigil for Stephen. And um, it was... It was really emotional. It was very beautiful and moving. And it just reminded me about how giving he was. He was so willing to talk to anyone who loved this medium. And he was he had so much heart and he had so much to give. And that is a beautiful and wonderful reminder to all of us in this industry and certainly something that we all need to take on, take the mantle on and be that way. It's been a lot of reminding ourselves what he gave to all of us and not just to the theater industry, the entertainment industry at large. Oh, yeah. So tonight, instead of doing What Have You Been Listening To, we've decided to go back and reminisce for a hot second on this past season. It's been pretty crazy. It's been really fun. It's been a ride. And like, I'm excited to go through these titles with you, Christina, because I feel like it's going to drum up some like exciting like, oh, I love that one. So which one of us should start this off? You go for it, Bobby. All right. Well, first real episode was on Marilyn, an American fable, who I think when we decided to do that one, I think people are a little questioning whether or not it would be great. But it ended up getting us a lot of attention right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we had original cast members coming out of the woodwork wanting to chat with us. In fact, we we did an interview with an original cast member, Cortez Alexander, who's incredible. Absolutely. Um, and you can check that out on YouTube. But that was... Learning about that show was so much fun and hearing the stories and people coming out on Facebook and Instagram and telling us all about their experience with the show. So yeah, and then we went to Taboo, which which oh was gosh. a great time. I and learning about it was so much fun. And again, original cast members coming out and telling us stories. And I think that's been part of the joy of doing this show. Oh, yeah. So many awesome people from the industry just kind of reaching out to be like, we love that you're doing this. All right. Well, yeah. So Taboo was followed by Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which, which? <laughs> I thought I thought that was where the podcast finally got its footing, right? Yeah, yeah. We started to which find is, our groove. Yeah, and I thought that was interesting for the sheer fact that neither of us love the show. And so it was right. where we were able to kind of dial in what our process was. Yeah. And then we had Flora, which was always one of my favorite flops. I love Flora the Red Venice. So revisiting that and falling in love with Palomino Pal, I mean. Which was followed by Honeymoon in Vegas, which was a lot of fun to be able to throw in a Jason Robert Brown show that I think a lot of listeners probably didn't know, which is kind of cool. 
No, it's not one that you would necessarily go and revisit, right? Like you would. I I really hadn't even clocked that it was a JRB show, right? And then we did Smile, which of course, just a I love mean, fest. Just that was a love a, fest. That was our first mega flop, I think. That was the one I think we were all a little scared about people coming out of the woodwork to be like, "You did it wrong." You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, we had such a great time with that. And then Anyone Can Whistle, which became my new favorite flop. Your absolute favorite. Your, yes. My absolute favorite. Like somebody revived that show so that Christina could be in it. Please. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, we got to do a little Android Weber with By Jeeves, which was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Learning about that show was really fun and getting to watch the Canadian production. I mean, very rarely do we get like a full production of a flop. Right like filmed production. That was cool. And then Dear World, which was another another show I fell in love with. You oh know? Oh my gosh. I, yeah, that was... And that was so great because I didn't really know the show before that. And so oh, okay, I knew yeah. of it and we got to dive in. And then, of course, we went totally modern with Rocky. Um, yeah. Which... Was that the first one of any of these that either of us had physically seen? Because I had seen it. Yeah, I think so. Because I, I haven't seen any of the others. Oh, I, I did see Honeymoon in Vegas. So never mind. Oh, okay. There you go. Mind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Rocky is such a fascinating conversation for the sheer fact that set was insane. That set. And then we did chess. The epic. Then we did chess. Oh, my goodness. And, and that. Oh, man. I had so many ideas. I want to direct it and fix it just like every other human on the planet. <laughs> Oh, and Chess brought both Ben Rimmelauer and Julia Murney to the My Favorite Flop family, which, hello. Oh, and Christina had a complete gush over her. I mean, right. come on. You can check that out on YouTube as well. Right. And then <laughs> followed by Carnival in Flanders, which was our Act 1 finale, which was one that neither of us knew anything about before we went into our research on it. So that was kind of a unique one. Yeah. It was, especially because it was our Tony. It was our Tony show. It was our Tony show. That was I, a good one. I, I mean, Carnival in Flanders, it won some Tonys. Ring the bell. Hey. Um, and then we took a break and we came back with the very interesting A Broadway Musical. Yes, that is the title. A Broadway Musical. And it's about a Broadway musical. Just all the things. That was... Learning about that, I think, was important. That was one of the ones that, like, I was like, this is important history, should never be touched again. No. There's no reason to revisit any of that material, but it is important to have the conversation and to remember what happened. 100%. 100%. And then we did the, the fascinating foreign women love fest that was Amelie and Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. Which yes, our first two show. Tudoche. Our first Tudoche. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And man, I really, I really wanted to love Women on a Verge. No, we just, just need, they need to set it in New York with Carrie and Samantha and Charlotte. <laughs> and that's, that is what that show needs to be. And then three card Capote. That was, I think until tonight, that might have been our most ambitious episode. I agree. I mean, tonight's going to really take the cake on that. But yeah, no, I loved learning about these three shows. Grass Harp, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and House of Flowers. Music in those shows is really beautiful and, and um, impactful. 
Oh, yeah. Three really wonderful scores. And then, of course, that was followed by one of my favorite musicals ever. This mm-hmm. was Big, which I think you enjoyed more than I thought you would, right? Oh, yeah. I love Big. It was one of those things where you really learn that one thing can bring a show down. Because totally. I really, I really and honestly believe that it was that one scene that took that show down. Yeah, definitely. And then we went into another Tudoche with Charlie Brown and Snoopy. Not to be confused with the TV show, Charlie Brown and Snoopy, though. No, like, sorry, sorry, sorry. These are the musicals. You're Good yes. Man, Charlie Brown and Snoopy the Musical. Yes. Um, which, you know, you fall in love with some of those songs. And I think we've all determined that these two shows should become one show. And then where do we go, Bobby? Oh, gosh. And then we did our first Halloween special of two. Mm which was also a two-doche, celebrating two amazing vampire musicals, Dracula and Lestat, which was a lot of fun. Yes, I mean, (laughs) all the blood-sucking. And then we went to another vampire musical. Who knew there were so many? Who knew there were so many? That was Dance of the Vampires. Dance, you vampires, dance! Which I would venture to say of all the... I don't know. I wouldn't say it's the strongest. I would say it's up there, though, being one of the strongest scores we listened to this entire season. Oh, yeah. Hands down. I I really actually enjoy that score, except for Eclipse of the Heart. That Right. We just pretend that never happened. Yeah. Okay. And then we went to Hannigan's Revenge and Annie Waterblocks. <laughs> All the versions of Annie 2 ever, uh, yeah. which was followed by a show that I honestly thought would be Christina's favorite and was not. I nope. completely missed this one, but was Rags, which was our last episode, yeah. uh, which brings us to tonight. Yes, it does. It brings us to tonight. So tonight we gave you one clue. That was that- it. Then that one clue was these eight musicals have one thing in common. And I'm emphasizing the the one. Yes. So tonight we are going to be covering eight shows, all closing on opening night. So these are all clopenings. Clopenings. Oh, my God. Oh, you're welcome. I've been waiting to say it. Thank you for for the clopenings. I I'm a little bit scared to jump into this, but mm. I think that there is no better way than to end our first season of my favorite flop than to celebrate some of the actual biggest flops in history because to close oh, yeah. on opening night like is a big deal. It's a big deal and no longer can happen, which we will be discussing in tonight's episode. We will absolutely be doing that. Now to be fair, we're focusing really on three shows and then yes. some will be mentioned casually in passing because when There's a show no yes when a show closes on opening night sometimes not even ken mendelbaum in the bible not so scary even writes about them so there you go it's just not worth it so where should we start this so we're gonna start we're gonna go in chronological order all right great first show up tonight is kelly the musical 1965. So uh, this is book and lyrics by Eddie Lawrence, music by Moose Charlap, who wrote Peter Pan. And then director and choreographer was Herbert Ross, who did many shows, including a couple that we've talked about. House of Flowers. Oh. Anyone Can Whistle. Oh. 
Meet Me in St. Louis. But the we haven't Fantastics. talked about that one yet. But we talked about no, that. No, but one. we did. But like, I had to throw in some of his successes. Okay. Yeah. All right, Bobby, you want to do the plot on this one? In 1880s New York, teenage busboy Hop Kelly, an Irish immigrant, is a sentimental daredevil who wants to make a successful jump from the Brooklyn Bridge and become a hero. But he's chickened out of it three attempts already. So a group of Bowery gamblers are betting against him surviving the jump, and they don't like the suspense. They decide to throw a dummy off the bridge in his place, but Hop really wants to make the jump, and eventually he successfully does so. The musical. <laughs> so believe it or not, friends, this is actually based on a true story. Yes. <laughs> about a guy who claimed to have jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge and survived. and survived. Now, there's nothing that can corroborate his story, but he claims that that is what happened. So let's talk about how this actually came to be. Because it's actually pretty interesting. It was originally written and conceived to be a movie musical. Yes, and there were movie producers involved right from the get-go. Yeah, so lots of money was there. The original title was Never Go There Anymore. And honestly, like, that doesn't strike me as a good title. I mean, yes, the song Never Go There Anymore in the show it's, is actually... It, it's the only good song from it, the show. And, and, and we'll get to that, but that song has nothing to do with the rest of the plot. I'm just throwing that into the universe. I agree. So yeah. Why would that be the title of the show? I'm very confused. Yeah, that's a good point. But yeah, it is. Like I said, it was based off of Steve Brody's original claim that he jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge and survived. And it was a pretty star-studded cast at the time, the musical, once it got to Broadway. I mean, it was starring Richard Harris, which is a big deal. Oh, that's um, huge. Yeah. Um, and then it was going through workshops. And then when they decided to push it through to Broadway, they got a brand new director and a brand new cast. <laughs> right. I mean... They just switched everybody out. Um. And then they did the out-of-town tryouts in Philly and Boston, and there were so many revisions to the point where they brought in Mel Brooks at one point to doctor the script. Yes, famously, Mel Brooks came in to make it, quote-unquote, better. I don't, I, I don't think it got there, based on everything I listened to and read. And then they did like a huge promo on the Brooklyn Bridge, which you can find on YouTube. They brought showgirls on the Brooklyn oh, Bridge and gosh. did like a whole number. Uh. <laughs> The original budget for this one, I think, is pretty astounding, especially for 1968. Oh, yeah. It started at 400K. And then when they struggled and they brought in new producers, it then got up to 650K. Which, for a Broadway show in 1968, I mean, this is like Spider... This is like Carrie the Musical status, which would eventually become Spider-Man status of, like, <laughs> the amount of money... <laughs> the amount of money that you would spend on a show that I don't know there's something about this that even just like you go through the plot th this is not something that sings to me does this something that sings to you no it's not something I would immediately assume is a good idea to make into a musical I think it's an interesting concept for maybe a film like it could lead to something funny or interesting I don't know but yeah no as far as a musical it doesn't make any sense there was just something about it that didn't strike me. Now, I should say that what happened was many a years later, right. in the 90s, they did a cast recording because they did a concert version of it at some benefit. 
And that included Brian Darcy James and a bunch of other big Broadway names at the time. And, um, and he played Kelly. And so they did a recording. They did a cast recording, which I found on Amazon. And yes, I have become a true flopaholic because that's the only place you could find it. So Christina bought the CD. No, you didn't. Christina, you're supposed to tell me that you need these things. <laughs> I bought the CD. You bought uh, Kelly. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. I found it really interesting because as someone who's a huge fan of Brian Darcy James. Sure. And his work. It was really interesting to listen to him. He had to have been in his early 20s. And he doesn't really sound like Brian Darcy James. No, I thought he, it sounded like Richard Kind. I was like, wait, who's in this show? Yeah, I mean, you get the glimpses of what we know as his voice now, but it, he put on a full character voice for this and oh, sang totally. in it. And that was fascinating. I mean, they all did, which was really bizarre to me. I don't quite understand why the direction went that way. I right. don't know that it was necessary, but it, it made a couple of the of the songs pretty funny. I found that the female songs were much stronger in the show than the male songs, which is unusual. But then again, Moose, I mean, he wrote all of Peter Pan, so maybe that makes sense. Look, for the listeners who haven't listened to anything from Kelly yet, you know, if you get this studio cast recording from this concert from 1998, it it's a very small band. And it mm -hmm. I don't it doesn't display how these songs would have sounded in a Broadway musical in 1968. So it's a little hard to judge how golden age the score might have sounded um there are little tidbits because the song you know never go there anymore um there are recordings of uh the original star doing it back in the 60s and that is a lush beautiful recording that sounds completely different than the way it's done in the On show the in 1998 right yeah and i actually like both of them Oh, of, yeah. Of the score, that's the only song that's worth anything. And I actually found a quote from Stephen Sondheim saying okay. he wished he had written that song. Well, I mean, there are other songs, but I, they're not the best. Are there? I mean, look, the show opens with the Ode to the Brooklyn Bridge, which is Brian Darcy James doing. I just, I had the hardest time getting through it because it was like, you big, beautiful bridge and you have steel and da -ba -da -ba -da -ba. it i don't know it was just like it, it had potential like i the first two times because it repeats like that the entire song and yes. never goes anywhere no which is the problem which and yes. if it had just done it the first two times and then gone somewhere right. i would have been in it i would have been with you and in it because i thought it was a it was a fun trope that brought some comedy and some life to what you're sure. about to talk about and then it didn't go anywhere. Well, and that's kind of, I think, a lot of the score. You know, uh, yeah. th the score leans on the comedy a bit. And uh, I think this will be a common theme of the evening, or at least my kind of take on what we've listened to. But mm -hmm. a lot of the songs in Kelly didn't feel like they were integrated into a full-on musical. It felt like that's a good point. they were all cabaret pieces. You know what I mean? Yes. And it, like, especially the solos, which is most of the score. I was like, is this furthering the story? Because it feels like it's got its own little, you know, beginning, middle and end. And I don't, it just was like, this, this is cute cabaret material, you know? Yeah, I agree. I think, like you said, none of it really seems to further the story. The mobster one does. Y and yes. 
than the final song, which doesn't feel like a final song. And I feel like there's just there's just music missing, but it like doesn't end anywhere. Like it, there's nothing that happens. Oh, everyone here loves Kelly. Like I felt the same way because on the recording, you get to hear Sandy, uh, the original cast member, perform yeah. Never Go There Anymore from the 60s. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait a second, the show's over? Like, <laughs> Yeah, it was really bizarre. It just felt like there was nothing, nothing happened. Right. And did he so, jump off the Brooklyn Bridge? Was he successful? I don't know. Did, how did he feel about it? I don't know. Uh, the show's over. You really <laughs> don't hear how much he feels about anything in the show. Other, That's a good point. Um, yeah, he's unsure, but he like wants to do things. It was like a lot of things just happening to him. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, it felt very snapshotty instead mm. of a a full thing. Well, famously with this one. Uh, I think it played the, was it the Broadhurst Theater? I think yeah, that the Broadhurst. Yes. Th- famously, the producers all walked out into the lobby during intermission, and that's when the decision was made. To- no. Yes. And the only reason I know that is because I used to go by when I would do walking tours of the theater district, and, you know, talking about Kelly there was one of our stories and how literally at intermission, the producers came out to the lobby and they're like, pull the plug. It's over. So they didn't even wait for act two. So. Wow. Yeah. Wow. With that, I think it's time to move on to our second show of the evening. Okay. Are you ready for it, Bobby? Let's give them the name. Cleavage. Cleavage. Uh, this, is, this is a show that played on Broadway. And honestly, I didn't know anything about this show or even that it existed. Tell yep. our executive producer was like, you're going to talk about it. <laughs> and I thought he was half joking because shows like this exist not on Broadway, especially from the 60s, 70s and 80s. But yep. they like are in weird cities like San Francisco or like like Chicago cast or you know what I mean? Yep. It's this is I was very surprised. Like I'm still in like disbelief that this show played on Broadway. Yeah, like how it got. I'm so I'm so confused. So let's start with who wrote this show. Okay. Music and lyrics are by Buddy Sheffield. Okay. Book by Buddy and David Sheffield. Directed uh, by Rita Baker. And the musical numbers were staged, not choreographed, but staged by Alton Jeno. Now, to recap, Buddy Sheffield wrote things like In Living Color. He wrote for Dolly Parton. And Roundhouse, which was on Nickelodeon, which is one of my favorites because half the cast of Newsies were in it. And I think Jenny Garth, maybe? Yes, I think you're right. And then his brother, David, who helped him out with the book, wrote for SNL. No big deal. The Nutty Professor. Like with Eddie Murphy. Yeah, wrote The Nutty Professor and all Mm -hmm. the subsequent films. And then Coming to America and Coming to America 2. Oh, Really? Oh, yes. Oh, well, there you go. Yep. Um, So just to like kind of put you in the mindset of this creative team, I wanted to make sure we really went there. So uh, the synopsis of this one's pretty good. In this musical, a variety of couples, both young and old, pursue love. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) So, and it's called cleavage. 
this was, I feel like this was part of a trend, two trends. Like uh-huh. it, it, and it being in the 80s is a little weird because I feel like the trend had kind of died. But like, obviously the trend of shows like Oh Calcutta and Let My People Come, which were like <laughs> the, the risque, uh, you know, they're kind of naked and they're adult and, and we're going to talk about, you know, taboo stuff, you know. So there was a whole group of those that were like mm-hmm. taking New York by storm. And then you had the shows like I Love My Wife and Personals and right. that were well, like a little reviewy, but also this idea of what are modern couples, you know, trying to do. Like, <laughs> I feel like Sondheim wrote company and everybody was like, well, we can we can write modern musicals about modern hip young couples. And, yeah, I don't know. Uh, this entire album is on YouTube if you'd like to go give it a listen. It's uh, quite interesting. There's some very strange music in it. So let's it, let's start. This The origin story of this show is fascinating to me. So it started out at the Sheffield Theater Ensemble in Mississippi in 1979 right. and was very well received always had sold out houses and was actually more of an improvised musical show that then slowly became scripted through the improvisation of the actors, right? Right. Um, And things kind of solidifying. And uh, then some money people saw it and were like, this should really go on tour and then go to New York. I don't know who they were, but they decided that was a good idea. Well, and to be fair, you know, as taboo as a lot of the stuff covered in this show is... If it was a hit down south where right. people didn't talk about this stuff in the open down right. there, it's like, well, those crazy New Yorkers love this stuff. So, like, exactly. Why not? So, they actually did a tour of the south first, um, and it was a huge hit, like, had sold out runs everywhere it went. And then they brought it up to New York, and uh, audiences and critics hated it. I thought it was tasteless. They thought it was ridiculous. I mean, just really didn't enjoy it at all. I mean, I'm sh- there are some reasons why. Did you see the forum on broadwayworld.com of this show? I read through it, but you're going to yeah. need to like jog my memory. It was just really fascinating. I mean, it was very split down the middle who loved it and who hated it. And it was just fun to read the comments. And also people were posting lyrics from the show that are just really choice look the the music in this show i mean it's very much that 1970s reviewsical kind of thing i don't know Mm -hmm. if it's necessarily much worse than what you see in personals or you know anything of that nature it does try to shock with songs like puberty or boys puberty was actually i thought it was really funny and i don't know i kind of found it funny (laughs) i like i didn't hate this score it's very Mm. 80s Fantastic. Yeah. But, you know, boys will be girls and give me an and like I could just tell that surprise me was also a good one. I liked that one. There were it, it wasn't bad score by any means. I mean, but it's definitely cabaret numbers. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a song cycle. I, right. I think that's why I was we've seen even in contemporary Broadway song cycles don't do well on Broadway. Right. Because when it's small shows like this, it's hard to engage a wider audience. Right. As edgy as it's trying to be, I think Oh Calcutta and Let My People Come 
do the shock factor better than this one. You know, there are mm. song titles in Let My People Come that I can't say uh, on this <laughs> podcast. But um, that show, famously performed nude, is a fascinating piece that has strong music in it, but is not afraid to pull out the shock factor. And I don't know the orientation of Buddy or David. This show definitely felt, and I feel this way a lot sometimes with these edgy shows, that sometimes they just feel like they're written by old men, old straight men. You know what I mean? Did you get that vibe from the music and lyrics at all? Yeah, a little bit. It feels a little forced. Yeah. I mean, here's what I'm going to say is that everyone should try. Right. Like if you've got an idea and it works for some people, everyone should try. It sucks right. that it closed on opening night. I also am very interested to see if this happens. But according to somebody on YouTube under the in the comments section, they're going to try and produce a concert version of this show for its 40th anniversary. Oh, next wow. Summer. Wow. So, I mean, 2022 in the summer, someone somewhere in the country is going to try and produce a concert of this and we will be watching closely. I mean, if maybe if we get lots of people to buy merchandise on this podcast, <laughs> we can physically go watch it. That would be cool. Or That'd even be better, Christina's going to star in it. Oh, gosh. So it closed on opening night and I don't think either of the Sheffolds worked in the theater. Like, I mean, at least on Broadway ever again. No, I mean, famously, Buddy went and pitched an idea to Disney Channel, which then Disney Channel said they didn't want it and then stole the idea, gender flipped it, and that became Hannah Montana. Oh, wow. So he actually sued Disney and they settled the day before it was supposed to go to court. So that means Disney, Disney did the wrong. Him. Oh, yep. yeah. Oh, yeah. Disney paid him out. Um, so, yeah, that I thought that was a fun little factoid. So we've done two of these now. Now, the third main musical we're going to talk about happened much later than these two. So our next one is Glory Days. Now, this, I'm sure many of you have heard about because it came out in 2008, so it's much more recent. Right. The interesting thing about Glory Days is that it's actually the last musical on Broadway that will ever be allowed to close on opening night. Yes, they changed the rules after Glory Days. Yes, you can no longer close. You can no longer have a clopening. You're welcome. <laughs> Music and lyrics by Nick Blamier, who was an actor in Crybaby, and wrote the book to the Descendants musical. Fun oh. facts. I know. I mean, I knew there he was is. an actor, but I had no idea he was involved with the Descendants. There we go. Well, and apparently he's written a couple other musicals that have had like some regional success. So okay. we may not have heard the last of this young man. Okay. Um, and then book was by James Gardiner. Okay. All right. So, Bobby, you want to do the plot for this one? Yes, because I actually love this show. Oh, okay, great. Uh, okay. <laughs> So the plot of Glory Days is this. A year after graduating high school, four best friends reconnect on their old school's football field. Will has called the boys together with a mission to hack into the sprinkler system so that it goes off when the jocks who bullied them in high school take the field for a charity game. But as the guys wait for instructions on how to break into the system, they quickly realize how dramatically their lives have grown apart. We all can relate to that. Yes. So this show is very 
you put it in your notes, but I'm going to steal it. It's very broy. It is like, I think that this is something that guys of a certain age connect to. And when I discovered this show, basically 2008, 2009, I was like, oh, yeah, this is it. This is like, yeah, it feels like if you're going to make a musical about a frat, like it feels like a frat musical. Yeah, except for it doesn't go anywhere. And that's the problem. I mean, also look, that, <laughs> you know, and look, I know that the Vanities musical never take off the way that people wanted it to. But like, there are successful ways to tell a story like this. It's usually been done with women because women are more open with their feelings and honest with, you know, relationships and things like that. But um, the fact that that plot is all that happens in this musical, and that actually sounds more exciting than the actual plot of the show, like yeah. watching it, it, there's just not enough there. You know, there are no flashbacks. There, the only like real tension in the show we'll get to, I guess, when we kind of break it down in a second. But um, yeah, I mean, I think we could talk about it now. It's when one of the characters comes out and not and everybody's okay with it. Well, one person specifically is yeah. not okay with it. And to me, I'm like, if that's your conflict in the musical, but that's not what the musical is about, there's a problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because... And it, it's also... It didn't feel like the stakes were high enough. Like, why was it so stressful that he came out? Is it because of the relationship you had, which maybe it was, but like, there's no discussion on it. You know, was it because you you felt like you were really close and he f couldn't be himself around you? Like, what is it? Is it that he had a crush on you? Like, I don't know. Right. Um, and like, so it there just wasn't an, an honest and true discussion about like why it was so heartbreaking for that character to come out. You yeah. Know? I mean, it felt like it felt like how frustrating guys could be the show. The show was as frustrating <laughs> as guys can be. Like, I don't know. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's alluded that the the friend is slightly homophobic and and they all are realizing that he was not who they thought he was throughout. So, it's, you know, because he tries to flip it and he keeps saying, like, how dare our friend come out and be gay? And, you know, he's betrayed us. And they all kind of flip it on the idea. It's like, well, we didn't know that he was this other guy was such an awful person. You know what I mean? But yeah, it just felt like it didn't go far enough with that. No, that. no, because like you're right. Like, is the guy closeted? Is is like what is the actual conflict other than a really generic like, well, straight guy hate gay guy? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> because that's kind of what it amounts to, and it's a lot yeah. of drama for just a year after graduation. Like, yeah, like, it felt like watching if CW tried to make a musical, right? Like I was when I listened to it and it's it has potential. The music has a lot of potential. It never quite gets there. There's a couple of like standout moments, maybe. And it was like a weird mix. If like, and this is gonna be a terrible everyone just forgive me. If Rent and Dear Evan Hansen had a baby. No, I this is the stepping stone one hundred percent. That's what this show would be, sound yeah. wise. You know, it, it, and I think that's what drew me and like people in my bubble to it when it came out was that it felt 
like the natural progression from Rent. You know what I mean? We finally got a show that had, because especially in some of the arguing moments, like, you mm. know, when they really get into the, uh, straight guy, hate gay guy, you know, situation. <laughs> I'm trying to sound like a Neanderthal. I, I gotcha. Kind of, I got it. I got um, it. Yeah. But uh, there were points that definitely felt like that scene in Rent um, where they're all arguing with each other. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, it, it was so reminiscent of Rent that it was almost frustrating to me. Interesting. Like, I don't want to... Rent is good. Rent needs to be left alone. Write something new. Well, you know, and, and that's it, well, how it, it looks, felt for me. It, it, it's like they were trying to evolve the genre. And you have to remember that this is coming out when Pask and Paul are not the Pask and Paul of Dear Evan Hansen in A Christmas Story, but... Pascal and Paul of Edges, the viral musical yeah. that so many new musical theater composers are trying to emulate. And there's a lot of this that feels like Edges. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good point. That's probably why I'm like, it sounds like Dear Evan Hansen. Um, right. Now, the origin story of this show, I find really interesting. Him and um, James basically just got together. They had been working on it. And then they went to one of their professors at Circle in the Square. Okay. And we're like, hey, we wrote a thing. And he was like, oh, this is good. We'll produce it. And I was like, why is it, how is it that easy? I mean, but he was also like an up and coming Broadway actor. Like, you know what I mean? So. Yeah, I guess. But like, that's, that is just with how many hoops even like established composers have to go through to get right. a workshop. I mean, because we're talking 2008. This isn't like the 60s or the no, 80s. Sure, you know, sure, sure. like this is 2008. So this is like well after Broadway's had its renaissance. Right. And like there's just the fact that they're like, yeah, sure, we'll throw money at you. And I'm like, how did how, Wow, that's a lot. That takes a lot of faith. That takes yeah. a lot of faith, a lot of trust, and a lot of hope. No, and look, it, I think it's set. I think it set this genre of this post-rent new musical theater back. I mean, when Glory Days flopped, it, this kind of music that would eventually become Evan Hansen and this big hit on Broadway, it was always a question of, is it going to ever make it? I mean, this was a huge deal in the world of Kerrigan's and Loudermilk's and again, Pask and Paul before they were household names. It, we hadn't really seen that open on Broadway yet, you know? And yeah. so I think I think people were more apt to throw money at something like Glory Days. It's a small cast, you know, the budget... One set. Yeah, the budget was small and there is a nostalgia factor for dudes. Like, I'm... Like, there is something <laughs> about... Dudes. No, but about the score, I don't know. Guys have weird no, relationships with each other. And so, like... It, like look i'm a huge fan of alternative rock and punk rock and it definitely has elements of that in the score so yeah as someone who like attaches that kind of music i i want that to become more normalized in right. the world of broadway and it, we just really haven't found great writers for it yet that really understand the medium i think we're right. starting some new stuff is starting to come out um that is exciting and hopefully will lead to that but yeah, it was one of those things where like I understood the interest in it and I understood like why you may want to throw some money into it. But it just was shocking to me that it was so simple for them. Right. You know, that that was just surprising. It just was. 
So I think that kind of covers glory days. Okay, so now let's go back and discuss what the similarities compare and contrast the first three, right? So we've got Kelly, Cleavage, and Glory Days. Which are all three very different shows. I think the the biggest like thing that they link together is that all of their scores to me feel very reviewsical. You know what I mean? I yeah. don't think any of these, and Cleavage 100% is a review, yes. but I think that score-wise, all three of them have that ability where the songs are not bad by any means. Some of them are not the best, but uh, they just feel like cabaret songs. And yeah, they're independent of the story. Yeah, I don't feel like I'm listening to a fully integrated musical on any three of these shows. With Kelly, I think of all three of these, Kelly is the story that is the most complete to be like, this could be a musical, you know, but because Glory Days, again, that conflict could be one musical number, you know, like, <laughs> and we're done and we're done, um, like in a cabaret. And that's the end of it. Uh, and right. Cleavage, it's like, yeah. Like, it feels half that the show was produced just to have a shocking title. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it, it really does feel like how it started, which is an SNL sketch. Right. And that's really what it was. It was a bunch of sketch artists who sang, who got together and improvised a show. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I don't know. I, that, it follows that, which is great. You know, know what you are, do it. And then Glory Days, the thing that's really glaring, the most glaring thing to me about Glory Days is its timing. Right. This is a white, straight-centric show, all men, right? Heteronormative, expected results. And it comes out in the same year as Obama being elected. I, yes, 100%. And the we cast are going was white. Completely white. Completely like, not white. even like possibly Hispanic, like no. completely white. I don't even know if there was even a hint of being Jewish in that there, cast. No, there is. There's lots of there really offensive oh, okay. Jew jokes, but yes. Oh, that's worse. Oh, yes. That's so much worse. Okay. But like, my point is, is that like, it is that it's that thing that when we go back and watch Friends now where we're like, wow, this is really white homophobic and yeah, homophobic. Like it's, it's very homophobic without us realizing it was. And, you know, that was of the time and it was of a time when that was the expected response. Right. And so right. that's what they were playing to. But we're in 2008 now. Like glory days should be past that. And especially with the age of those who were a part of it and wrote it. And according to everything I read and, and listened to in terms of cast interviews is the cast was very involved in the creation of these characters and the trajectory of their storylines. Right. Um, they gave input. They said if something felt inauthentic, they would do all these things. So like, to me, if this is 2008 when the country is changing, like massive changes, there's no way that a show like this survives. Yeah. I mean, the fact that it is, it, it's true to form because like the people in the show are supposed to be, you know, except for the homophobic one, a woke or whatever, were like, like good dudes. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're progressive. Still, they're still four white dudes. So in the age of, 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 but that's we learn that because 
a lot of people who voted for Obama also voted for Donald Trump and are now disillusioned guys in their basements. Um, so, <laughs> and maybe that's the sequel to Glory Days. Maybe that's Glory Days too, Miss. Uh, I don't know whose revenge it could be, but it's made me look at Glory Days in a completely different way. But uh, you're well, welcome. That's what I'm here for. Um, bros. No, but I mean, these each of these shows feel out of place, right? Because also, even going back to Kelly, right, which is 1965, this is like the Jim Crow laws are ending, the Watts riots have happened. There's a big push for civil rights at this point, um, which why there has to be a push at all is annoying. Um, But, you know, and one of the things that they kind of like hint at in this show is the Irish immigrant story. You know, they kind of have little sprinkles of like what that struggle is here and there. And like, you know, the struggle between certain cultures within New York City with different immigrants and, you know, has some of that, but doesn't really go there with it. Right. Um, Which for a show that's titled Kelly, you think that they would. I mean, Kelly's a very strong Irish name, right? So like, go there. You know, um, when, no, and they, they didn't even play with it. No. And, and look, I, I think the the reason that Kelly is an idea could possibly work is the same reason that, uh, you know, a Houdini musical could work one day and a Barnum musical works in its own way, whether it's Barnum or the greatest showman is you can tell these stories of immigrant people sometimes Mm -hmm. better than other, but you have to make that part of, because if he was this, and he might be in the show, um, this immigrant or child of immigrants, and he's trying to like get fame and like raise up in the, you know, the American dream, that's a story. I mean, that's Houdini's story, you know? And it's almost like Kelly is a stand. And I know it's based on a real life story, supposedly of someone who claimed that they did this, but it's like, to me, Houdini is the more, A, he's a recognizable figure, whereas people don't really know that this is real. But B, you have so much there of him wanting to impress his mother. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. uh, really doing all of these feats of danger because that's his only way out from being in the bottom rung of, or one of the bottom rungs of society is he has to make that huge jump. You don't, when you're, when you, many immigrants and child, children of immigrants you don't get to just move up in society. It takes yeah. it takes larger than life things because otherwise it's your, your great grandkids who might move well, up through the generations. And Houdini would be an interesting way to use stagecraft and stage sleight of hand, you know, type stuff in such a wonderful way um, in a musical, right? Like you would get those larger than life images. You get chandelier moments, you know, with <sighs> just his own techniques, which is cool. Right. Because there's know? nothing stage bound about jumping off the Brooklyn bridge. Absolutely uh, not. It, that, and that's why it's like this, maybe if it had been a quirky movie in the seventies, I could buy it. You know what I mean? Like, right. If, which I think is what it was originally going for. Like if it was a Mel Brooks musical or if Bob Fosse directed this, like in the seventies <laughs> as a film, like I could buy this again. I'm, I don't know how any of these survive even past it because, 
You know, there are certain flops that survive because the music is so brilliant or there's a specific actor who really just stole the hearts of many. Right. And maybe it didn't have a truly successful run, but there was enough goodness there that it became not completely lost to the fathomless files of Broadway, right? Whereas all of these shows tonight have been lost to the fathomless files of Broadway because let me tell you, some of them don't even have Wikipedia pages. (laughs) That is true. I mean, you know, I think Never Go There Anymore is a beautiful song that, you know, even Stondheim says that he wished he wrote it. Uh, Glory days will live on because straight men in musical theater exist. And uh, (laughs) Christina, you teach straight men. And I feel like one day you will have to assign one of these songs to them. And I mean, look, out of context of the show, they're pretty good. This commercial break is sponsored by Please Buy Our Merch. Please visit www.myfavoriteflop.com today. All right, so now we're going to go into what we'd like to call the rapid fire round. The rapid fire round. We'll see how rapid it is. You know how Bobby and I can talk. We are now going to cover five shows that all opened between 1968 and 1972. So one flop a year. And they all closed on opening night, like just making sure people are on board with us. All clopenings. So (laughs) the first of these is called Here's Where I Belong in 1968. Music by Robert Waldman of Robert Bridegroom fame. Lyrics by Alfred Urey, Driving Miss Daisy. Oh, heck yes. And then, uh, sorry, those Alfred Urey wrote the lyrics. And then book by Alex Gordon and Terrence McNally. Except Terrence McNally took his name off by opening night. Yes, but we'll get he to did ask to take his name off. So the synopsis for this one. All right. The relationship between two brothers sours as they compete for their California farmer father's love in the musical adaptation of John Steinbeck's novel, East of Eden. So, I don't know if Steinbeck is the best subject for musical theater. But nope. I mean, The Grapes of Wrath might make an interesting opera. Someone's probably done it. Oh, no. I mean, can't even make it through that movie. If Les Mis can be a musical. I don't like Les Mis. The Dust Bowl could be a musical, too. <laughs> That's that's our French, like poor people in the streets. <laughs> oh, geez. I mean, to their credit, they focused on one section of the book. They did not try and do the whole book. Okay. Um, so they focused on what is called the Cain and Abel section, where it's really focusing strictly on the two brothers and their fight. Because the book like covers something like five or six decades oh. of this family feud. So they they narrowed it down to like one decade of the book and it's this argument section which is smart you know you pick the heightened section of the book you know with the most conflict leads to the best material right right that makes sense but this show is kind of set up to fail from the beginning they opened and were immediately like during previews they were being picketed oh absolutely by the this this used to be the name of the um of the organization Oriental Actors of America. 
Um, and it was in an Asian American actors group that were activists. And they were picketing this show because there was an Asian character who was being played by a white man in yellow face. Oh, which is my. bad. Um, yes. And so they were being picketed. I mean, this show also had 20 previews, which is a lot for a flop. Right. Um, and then, of course, flopped on opening night. The only music I could find was a title song. And it was not nice. I did not enjoy it. Yeah, I think there was one other one that was like really jumpy. Like I had to really look for it though. Because uh, oh, it was okay. recorded by some band, We're a Home, oh gosh, by the, oh. by the Raycon of Singers. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh gosh, I hope it didn't sound like this on Broadway. Because it was like very 1960s, but boom, boom, boom. I'm not even doing it right. But like, it was just very it was bouncy. Just so good. That was so good. But yeah, that was pretty much all I could find on this. Like you said, Terrence Manali was like, please take my name off the show. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> well, and apparently during one of the tryouts or the tryout in Philadelphia, there was a spotlight fire and Ken Mendelbaum, you know, obviously the writer of the Bible. He actually has a couple paragraphs on the show. And well that's scary. Apparently the fire was the most exciting thing that happened on stage opening <laughs> night out of town. So, oh my gosh. That's, um, it's quite impressive that they managed to have a spotlight fire. Right. It's hard to do. Right. I John Steinbeck, I mean, I'm trying to think of uh, granted I don't I can't think of a like a Grapes of Wrath musical that's happened, but you know, famously Pipe Dream is also based on John Steinbeck and I know we haven't covered it on this podcast, but No, but also of, a flop. Yes, Rodgers and Hammerstein, they wrote some flops too. Yes, they did. <laughs> well, so that leads us to the next year, right? Yes. Which you want to give this one go? Oh, yes, which is 1969. And that is Billy. Now, not to be confused with Billy starring Michael Crawford in the West End, which was a successful show, correct? Very successful show. It ran for a couple of years. And I'm not going to lie. I actually, until we went into research on this, thought they were the same show. So Me I was too. like, <laughs> but, and they, but they have the same source material, right? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Well, there I you go. I think that it's two completely different things. I could be wrong. All right. Well, so Billy is music and lyrics by Ron Dante and Gene Allen with a book by Stephen Glassman. Uh, and the synopsis of Billy is this. An innocent young sailor is accused of mutiny and then tried for murder in this musical adaptation of Herman Melville's novella, Billy Budd. Okay, here's the deal. Y'all need to stop making musicals out of like, like (laughs) epic American authors, right? Like, right. It doesn't work. It doesn't work, friends. Um, And it's funny because Billy Budd, actually, there is an opera that is done uh, quite often based on the same source material um, that one of our friends was in, actually, many years ago. Really? Yeah, Matthew Turner. Was was, in Billy Budd the opera? Was in Billy Budd the opera because they needed fighters. Sure. And so he was shirtless and like painted head to toe. It was great. So I couldn't find a cast album for this. Could you? No, I couldn't find any music available. I found a couple forums where apparently there were there were some demos that were circling around, but I couldn't find any okay. anything. It was interesting because the scenic designer for this show is also the same scenic designer as Here's Where I Belong, what we just spoke about. Oh, man. 
I know, right? Oh, two in a row. And it was also nominated for two Tonys. Best Scenic Design and Choreography. Oh, well, this could have been on our Tony special. Oh, my goodness. It could have been. And then also won the Drama Desk for both of those. Oh, wow. That's insane. Yeah. So, So, like, apparently, this show had some redeeming qualities, but I couldn't even find reviews on it. Yeah, it's the only thing, you know, there are a couple paragraphs in Knots and Scary. You know, there's praise for the set. There's praise for the choreography. Other than that, it was considered like a pointless, lifeless show. You know, the opera, which was done, you know, at the beginning of the 50s when it was written, like was considered people love the opera and it's still done Mm -hmm. to this day. So it's like this piece had already been adapted theatrically well enough in people's conscious so that it was like, unless this musical was amazing, people didn't felt it was necessary. So. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's just like Porgy and Bess. When Porgy and Bess is done in a musical theater setting, it's still the opera. You know, it's just musical theater light. Right. We don't, we don't have someone write a new Porgy and Bess. Absolutely not. You don't need to. Right. Well, okay. So I think that's about all we have on Billy because the only cast recording I have has Michael Crawford on it. And that's apparently not the same musical. So Not the same musical. So that leads us to 1970 and a musical called Gantry. 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 These are great titles, friends. Kelly, Billy, Gantry. <laughs> um, music by Stanley Lebowski who um, is a very beloved music director and music supervisor on Broadway and worked on many hits and many flops, including Me and My Girl, Singing in the Rain, Cats, Can Can, Chicago, Pippin, and one of our favorites here at My Favorite Flop, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yes. But that was all music direction and music supervision. This is the only musical he ever wrote. Oh, wow. I know. Uh, Lyrics by Fred Tobias, who is actually a pop writer and worked with people like Elvis, Patti Page, Bobby Rydell, her favorite, and many others. The book was Peter Bellwood. I couldn't really find much information on him. Okay. And uh, the plot... Based on 1927 novel, again, Elmer Gantry by Sinclair Lewis, it tells the story of a womanizing, self-righteous, self-proclaimed preacher who joins forces with a female evangelist to sell religion to a small town in America. So this actually sounds like it would make a good musical. Yeah, it's kind of similar to The Grass Harp. A little bit. A little bit. Um, And this had 31 previews. Oh, So they had a little more faith in it. Now, I should say that this musical actually had a heavy hitter for direction and choreography. Ona White. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. Uh, And for anyone who doesn't know, she she was the director and choreographer of The Music Man, the original, Half a Sixpence, 1776, Gigi, a flop, Billy, on the West End with Michael Crawford, not the Billy we just spoke about, Mame, the Bye Bye Birdie film and was and many, many others that I don't need to list, but was also nominated for eight Tonys in oh, her life. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a big deal. I mean, I have never read Elmer Gantry. However, the basic plot synopsis, you know, that is a 
a complex yet simple enough statement. You know what I mean? Be like, that could be a good musical. You know, the basic structure, I think, makes sense. However, I couldn't find a cast recording to this. Could you? I could not. Um, Again, I found some forums of people talking about it who had seen the show. Apparently, another try at this musical with a different creative cast. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And they actually did it at La Jolla and was directed by Des Mackinoff. Oh, and I think that was just at the Signature in Arlington and Virginia as well. Oh, okay, cool. So I think it's been done a couple places because that was with the only songs that I was finding. And I'm like, this is not the same musical. There's it's no It's not way. the same musical, apparently. It, they, it's, the same, it's the same source material. Okay, um, Just sure. a completely different creative team. But yeah, it was also, interestingly enough, the last show to premiere at the George Abbott Theater. Oh. Before it got torn down. Oh, that's sad. That's not... See if Gantry had just been a hit. Like... It would have stayed open. It would have stayed open. Oh, no. But that's all I could find. Did you have other stuff? No. I was, I'm again, there are paragraphs in Knots and Scary, but it really is just a retreat of what we've already said. Like the show was just not, there was a film, I think in 1960, starring Shirley Jones, uh, that I think oh, okay. in a memorable performance. So it's, it's one of those things, you know, in the 60s and 70s, we're getting to this point where we start adapting movies into musicals, but the common, as we're seeing this trend go through the list, is these books. But the problem is, is really great books get adapted into movies, you know? And, right. And there's more time to deal with the complex stories that some of them have, you know? 100%. 100%. I think the basic premise of Gantry 100% makes sense for the musical theater world. Uh, but without listening to it, it's hard to really judge, you know? It is. It's hard to know. 100%. But I think that leads us to our next one. Bobby, why don't you take 1971? Okay, so 1971, we have Frank Merriwell, which when I saw this on the list, I was like, Stephen, where did you find this one? Because <laughs> I never heard of this one before. And I will say at least of these five that we're doing at the end, this probably had my favorite score. Granted, I couldn't listen to a lot of them, but I did find a couple songs from Frank Merriwell and I thought like this actually... This is good music. You know what I mean? Oh, I didn't get to hear the music on this one. There were a couple songs I found on YouTube. You have to get creative with like putting quote marks around certain words to make sure that like searches. But um, but yes, so Frank Merriwell has music and lyrics by Skip Redwine and Larry Frank with a book by Skip Redwine, Larry Frank and Haywood Gold. The synopsis for Frank Merriwell is this. The adventures of a heroic college student in approximately 1896 are musically adapted from a series of novels by Bert L. Standish. That's what we got. This actually, this story has been adapted into a couple of different mediums, including a syndicated comic strip. Okay. A serial radio play that was very popular. It ran for a few years, took a break for a decade, and then came back again for a few years. Oh, wow. And as well as a film. Okay. So obviously, I've never heard of these books. I don't know anything about... And I am the type of person who like loves to learn about these kinds of things. Right. And I've never heard of this. Um, this character or these, these books and these stories. So it, I find it fascinating that it had so much legacy to it. Right. And I've never heard anything about it. Um. So this actually, I was able to find some reviews on it. 
Okay. And there was one that stuck out to me. Um, so I'm going to quote it here. I think it was the New York Times. Could have been sung better. Oh. Music was forgettable. Only performance he loved was Bill Hinnett, who is from the Snoopy and Charlie Brown days. And he felt that the character and story were out of date and no one really cared about this character anymore. I mean, like, look, I have never heard of the character Frank Berrywell before. Hello, this. And does anyone really care about, like, a college student in 1896? I mean... Well, and his whole thing was that he was apparently like a collegiate athlete and he uh, had like incredible um, honor. So this is basically the premise of Glory Days. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, like media- mediocre straight white dude syndrome. Like I, yeah. I, I, unless something extraordinary happens to this character, it's tough. I mean, look, it's even tough. We covered it recently with... Uh, you know, our sequel episode with um, Annie to Miss Hannigan's Revenge, even with a well-known beloved character, you still have to have a really great story to bring people in. Well, and I found a more detailed synopsis somewhere. And apparently like what happens, because like Bill Hinnett's character is the villain. uh, Okay. And apparently at the college, they discover some bomb or something all of a sudden like goes to the James Bond realm and like the Russians are involved, the Soviets and like he has to save the day, you know, Uh, it's very like Riverdale. (laughs) Oh God. Well, uh, I mean, I guess that makes sense for something that was a comic strip, you know, one day I hope we cover it. So I don't want to dwell in this, but I, I had the pleasure of seeing uh, about a month and a half ago, Doonesbury, the musical here in Las Vegas, which is also oh based on a comic strip. And believe it or not, there are bombs in that one too. And saving there it is. Saving days. And I'm like, okay, that's an interesting choice for choices uh, were made. Yeah. But at least people knew what Doonesbury was when that premiered on Broadway. Like it <laughs> for the New York Times to be like, nobody cares about this character anymore. That's probably yeah. a, you shouldn't have used this as your source material for your musical. Yeah. And like it was directed and choreographed by Neil Kenyon. I think I said that right. I think um, so as well. Yeah. Uh, who is known for Dames at Sea, the original. Okay. The original cast, the original production. Um, so, you know, they had they had someone who knew what they were doing at the helm, which is good. But like this was also out of time. Well, we're gonna talk about like what was going on during this this five year span in America and in the world that I think really impacted a lot of these musicals and the choice of subject matter. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, everything I read about this show is that it was unimaginative and boring. Yeah, I mean... So, (laughs) there it is. I like the two songs I heard. There you go. Uh, (laughs) They were nice. Well, that, Christina, why don't you give them our next and last one, bringing us to 1972. 1972. Here we go. Heathen. This is my favorite title of all of the ones we're talking about tonight. Music and lyrics by Eaton Magoon Jr. I mean that name. He's Hawaiian. Leave him alone. Book by Sir Robert Heltman, uh, who is famously the child snatcher in the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang movie. Oh, that's fun. And then Eaton also helped with the book. So the synopsis... 
The beliefs and needs of two eras in Hawaii, 1819 and 1972, are compared with strong similarities emerging. Okay, so this is basically Pacific Overtures. Yeah, it's it's basically talking about the colonization of Hawaii and how religion came to be a part, like Western, I should say, sure. Western religion came to be a part of the Hawaiian Islands. I think like makes for an interesting conversation. It The fact that they bounce between such different time periods of 1819 and 1972, I feel like just is automatically going to lend itself to confusion and um, a lot of dissonance within the storytelling. Sure. That's big differences. You have to get really specific about that without having like a projection or anything stating when you're switching between the two. Right. Not that I saw any, any footage, but it, I think visually it would be very difficult for the audience to follow along, in right. my opinion. Right. Well, I, I think it's a fascinating concept for something. You know what I mean? I don't know if yeah. musical is the right uh, medium for it. You know, I, I am a Stephen Sondheim fan who I will sadly admit did not appreciate Pacific Overtures, which is very similar to this. Uh, mm. at all until I'd seen it at classic stage off Broadway a couple years back. Uh, and I was basically dragged to go. I was like, Ugh, Pacific overtures. And, um, you know, and I, in the show is so fascinating, you know, I think that, um, there's a lot of really wonderful things about it and it definitely opened my eyes a, a lot to about the, you know, um, opening up of Japan, you know, to, trade and after being closed for 400 years and things like that. So I definitely think that these musicals are important, but that show I'm pretty sure flopped as well. I don't think that that's considered one of Stephen Sondheim's hits. So I think it's, it's tough. You know, Hawaii in the United States is a hot button issue. You know, we added it as well as Alaska and it became a bit of, paradise in our own backyard and you know is the most one of the most popular honeymoon spots and whatever in the country but as far as respecting or even appreciating hawaiian culture we're really bad at it as a nation oh yes so i can only imagine in 1972 the disinterest of new york audiences uh, of what this musical was trying to say and do and I also I don't know how seriously they were trying to do it because I read a review somewhere where they said it was like watching a cheap Vegas show with girls in fake grass skirts and coconut bras really I mean with that in mind to me it sounds like it wasn't it was going for the kitsch instead of the genuine storytelling and I know that Eaton is from Hawaii uh, and I, it sounds like his family has lived there for a while, but I don't, the reason I say, I don't know that he's actually Hawaiian. So I want to be clear about that. I'm not completely sure, but he comes from the real estate business, um, and actually has written a couple of musicals. Uh, one that did make it to Broadway. Yes. Famously 13 daughters, which, yes. uh, was almost completely rewritten by Cy Coleman. Did you know that? 
I did. And he also came and rewrote um, Heathen. Oh, wait. Did Cy Coleman work on Heathen as well? Yep. Wow. He came as... So when they... did. So when Heathen closed on Broadway, they said, no, we're not done with this. And so they took it back to Hawaii to rework it and put it back in the theater that it had started at in Hawaii. Okay. Sir Robert Heltman came in and directed it. And then as... Or uh, he was a part of it. And then they brought in Joe Layton to oh, come direct it. Famous. And as a uh, favor to Joe, Cy Coleman came out and helped do redo the music arrangements. And that was how it happened. And then from there, Robert took it out to New Zealand where it was very successful. And that was when they created a full cast album with a 28-piece orchestra which is now known as Aloha. When they did the rewrite, when they went back to Hawaii, right. the show is now called Aloha. Um, and that album does exist. But the Heathen album never got made. And apparently there's some demos that are supposedly okay. roaming around out there somewhere by, you know, flopaholics. But yeah, that that was what I was able to find on it. Yeah, you know, it... Um, it Aloha is a better title. It's the wrong title still for what this musical is trying to say. But yeah, uh, it, it's better than heathen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Cy Coleman, interesting that he came back because I think he and Dorothy Fields were brought in to fix the score to 13 Daughters, uh, which was all the way back in 1961. So almost a full decade before or an entire decade, even more so, uh, was brought in and none of their songs were used on Broadway. Um, and I think at least one of them became a big hit on the radio. The song Firefly uh, was written oh, for okay. 13 Daughters. So uh, it's interesting that he was convinced by Joe Layton to come back and help again and fix the piece. I mean, look, you get to live on Hawaii for a couple of months. That ain't bad. It's, there are worse things you could do. Worse things. Um this show also, for its one night on Broadway, starred uh, Russ Thacker, who never had a hit on Broadway. There's been many flops, oh. including Grass Harp. It's all coming back to the rest of our season, Christina. I know. Um, to learn more about the Grass Harp, please check out Three Card Capote. It's fascinating to me that he just keeps going. And I found um, a foreign forum on this show. And apparently Eaton Magoon is still like chugging along in theater really? out in Hawaii and like is in his 80s, still a part of things and is on Facebook and openly talks to people about his time with these musicals. Wow. Uh, yeah. So like he's still very active, <laughs> which is pretty incredible. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. So now that we've covered these last five rapid fires... Let's talk about what was it about these years from 1968 to 1972? Like, what was going on that, like, what, let's compare and contrast and try and figure out, like, what was going on with these five, aside from, like, their individual gems or not gems. Right. Well, you know, the first three are based on pretty famous novels. You know what I mean? Yep. And so that I think, look, you're getting 1968 to 1970 and you're about to be on the dawn of 
you know, in 1969 is when uh, Hair is becoming a big hit on Broadway. Uh, you've got Jesus Christ Superstar, which is creating a new genre, essentially, the rock opera. Yeah. And then you're on the eve of the company, which is going to change the Broadway musical forever. So you've got Weber and Sondheim in the wing who are uh, people who exist, but they're about to like, they're about to change the world. And, you know, the 60s, for a lot of people are considered the golden age of Broadway. You know what I mean? And that's where you get um, the funny girls and the how to succeeds and, uh, you know, all that magic, the late 50s into the 1960s. And I think we're seeing, at least on the on the industry side, we're seeing an industry that's trying to figure out where it's evolving. Because I think all three of those shows, you know, based on these novels, are definitely trying to take Broadway into a more complicated, at least musical theater place than mm -hmm. My Fair Lady or uh, How to Succeed or any of that. But it's clear that's not what audience uh, audiences wanted at that point, you know? these yeah. steps i think were a little too epic maybe when it comes to gantry billy and here's why i belong i think that was was a little bit too too much of a jump i think for people to accept as what could be a musical yeah i mean also during this time we've got to talk about the fact that this is the space race this is oh, the height yeah. of the space race as well so like that's going on in the world and then in 1968, we have the death of both Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy, who are yeah. two tycoons in, you know, moving this country forward in civil rights. Right. So you have the death of them, and then you move into 1969, where, you know, not a ton happened, but again, space race is really ramping up and the Vietnam War is happening and that is becoming more and more in a place of we're getting protests. All of that is starting to happen. Well, and then you've again. got Stonewall, you know. Oh, right. So you're on the you dawning have that. of the age of the gay rights movement as well. So the country's moving forward. I mean, that's the... And all of these stories are moving backwards. Yes. And that, I think, is huge. There's a reason why Company shakes up Broadway so much is it's a contemporary musical about contemporary people in New York City, you know? Yeah. And dealing with things like anxiety. Right. Just and true fear. Yeah. these, it, Which is where everyone is at at this point. I mean... Of everything that happens in these years, the only thing that's great is Disney World opening in 1971. 100%. That's the only happy thing. Oh, 100%. And that's got a Tomorrowland that's inspired by the space race. And, yep. you know, it's very much a, like, there's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. Like, that is the theme of the opening of Disney World, you know? Uh, yep. No, these all feel old and they're all really dude centric. And we are we are coming into a country that's embracing or starting to embrace gay rights, civil rights, feminism, things like that. You know, uh, that's coming forward in the 70s. So these just feel like stories that are dated. Well, folks, that's it. Thanks. That is season one of my favorite flop. I mean, we gave you we gave you 
like 30 musicals this season over the course of 22, technically 23 episodes. And uh, yeah, we are still so taken back at all of the love that not only people who've been involved with some of these shows uh, and other folks in the industry, but just our fans like reaching out to us while we were recording. I don't know if you know this. I have no idea what they sent Christina, but we're getting messages from people on Instagram. You know, I love it. Like uh, people, they love to chat with us and sometimes they comment. And yeah, we're glad that we're bringing lots of joy into all of your floppaholic hearts. Now, just a reminder, hit the subscribe button because we will be back for season two. So you want to make sure you get the little ding-a-ling when we're back. <laughs> Ring the bell. Uh, <laughs> Ring the bell! And absolutely. And look, there is no better way to spend your holiday break, ladies and gentlemen, than to go back and re-listen to any of those episodes that you might have missed. Because there's, like we said, there's like 23 of them. And so... And there's also all the fun bonus material on our YouTube page. Absolutely. Where you get to see interviews with some incredible guests, um, producers, actors, you name it, they're there. Flopaholics, oh yes. Julia Murney, she's there. You see Christina just like become a giddy (laughs) schoolgirl. It's really... All right, Christina. Well, we don't have any clues because obviously we're all going on holiday break. You have a child and... I have siblings. So. <laughs> with children. With children. That was the point of what I was trying to say. Uh, and we have to spend time with our flopaholic families. We do. So please go check out our merch. They make for great Christmas presents for all of your flopaholic friends. And thank you so much for joining us on this incredible journey it is truly moving and a complete joy for bobby and i to have been in your ears for an entire year and counting (laughs) all right well we don't have a clue this week but christina do you have any parting words for our listeners oh you snow the drill it's no joke it's no laughing matter are you ready What did Adam say on the day before Christmas? Uh, What? What did Adam say on the day before Christmas? It's Christmas, Eve! But um, But wait! Oh. But wait! There's myrrh. I'm Elf Tot. Okay. Bye! Bye!